This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Well, as you heard this morning, I have two older brothers. My eldest brother lived in Singapore for seven years in the 1990s. And I remember visiting him in 1996 in Singapore. And one of the things that I did was to take my three-year-old nephew at the time, his son, to the Singapore Zoo. And the animals that I was particularly keen for my nephew to see, my three-year-old nephew, were, of course, the lions. Well, we walked around visiting the various animals, but we're always getting closer to the lion enclosure. And when we came to the lions, we walked around this corner to see them, and there before me were these magnificent creatures. One grunted, you know, I felt the ground move. Uh, I just stood there, memorised. And after a while, I, I kind of pulled my eyes away, keen to see a look of wonder on my little nephew's face. But what did I find? He had his head buried in the bin. The rubbish bin. Here were the lions, the so-called king of the jungle, and my nephew seemed more taken with the trash. Now, this is a picture of what can happen to us as believers. You see, when we come to the work of Christ on the cross, we come to the very centre of Christianity itself. This is the high point. This is the pinnacle of God's revelation to us. But it's so very easy to get distracted by things of lesser importance. Spiritual trash. See, one of the greatest dangers in the Christian life, one of the greatest dangers for the local church, one of the devil's great strategies is that we become so familiar with the work of Christ that it can breed contempt. We can get bored of hearing about it all the time. And that is a huge danger. Because so many churches go awry, not because they deny the gospel, but because the gospel just, little by little, goes into the background. And it ceases to be the centre and the heart and the soul. The gospel is not one doctrine, one topic amongst others. It is the apex of Christianity. And if the work of Christ is anything, then it must be everything. I know many married couples. They never tire of looking back at their wedding photos. And we must never tire of going back and looking at the cross. 
That's what we're going to do tonight. But first, let's have a recap of the map. You guessed it. If you get this wrong, I don't know what I'm going to do. What's the most important topic? Fantastic. And what's the gospel? Person and the work of Christ. And why do we have a gospel? The doctrine of sin. And who is it that commits sin? Humanity. And how did humanity come about? Right. And what does creation link to? Doctrine of God. That's right. Knowledge of the fantastic. Gospel's all about salvation accomplished. But then we've got to talk about salvation applied. And so we do that in the doctrine of salvation, corporately, church, finally, last oh, This is fantastic. Uh, this church is unbelievable how quickly they learn. Now, when we come to the work of Christ, how would we go about organising it? Well, a good approach is to follow the Apostle Paul's words in his famous chapter, Philippians 2, where it says this, that the Son of God made himself nothing. How? By taking on the very nature of a servant, that is, by coming a human and being made in human likeness, and then being found in appearance as man, what, what did he do? Well, he also humbled himself. By becoming obedient to death, even, can you believe it, death on a cross. And what was the result of his death on the cross? Well, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Now, in this beautiful hymn that Paul uh, um, unpacks there in Philippians 2, we get two basic movements. It's like a... Bungee jump. Christ goes down and Christ goes back up again. Do we know what a bungee jump is? Yeah, good, okay. Just, just a few frowns there. The great cosmic bungee jump of God the Son coming down to earth and then the movement back up again. And the coming down we can describe as a humiliation, a humbling. See, Christ made himself nothing. That's a humbling. And we get it again in verse 8. He humbled himself. So there's the focus of God becoming human and then in the person of Christ dying. That's the humiliation of Christ. And then, of course, God exalted him to the highest place. This is Christ's exaltation. So what theologians have done over the years is to unpack the work of Christ according to this twofold movement. We talk about Christ's humiliation on one hand and Christ's exaltation on the other. Too many Christians preach a gospel that emphasises Christ's humiliation without speaking about Christ's exaltation. Now, when we come to Christ's humiliation, what this emphasises is that our Saviour is fundamentally a servant. And so we begin with Christ's life. This is an essential part of his work. 
Now, here's the question. Why could not Christ have just appeared at 33 years of age and just died on the cross then? Why did he have to be born, raised, live his life, have this particular ministry to Israel over three years? Answer? It's because Christ's life, and particularly his earthly ministry, it reveals God in a special way. Jesus' words and Jesus' mighty deeds climactically reveal that God, the first person of the Trinity, is a father. For example... Look here at John's Gospel. Look at what it says. No one has ever seen God. But the one and only Son, Jesus, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. That's at the beginning of John's Gospel. Look at what we read at the end of John's Gospel. Where Philip comes to Jesus and says, Lord, show us the Father and that'll be enough for us and you can just feel Jesus' sigh at this point. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been amongst you such a long time, I mean, lived with him for three years, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? See, Jesus' life is the climactic revelation, ultimately, of the first person of the Trinity as Father. Now, this is where lots of people misunderstand Jesus' miracles. Because Jesus' miracles weren't fundamentally about him having compassion on people and helping people. They were that. They were that. But they weren't fundamentally that. Jesus' miracles were done to fundamentally reveal who he was and then in turn to reveal who God the Father was. My whole life, people have come to me and go, gee, you know, you look like your dad. Now look at the size of that nose. And then when I started bawling, it was just a a done deal. I was a replica of my dad. And the same goes for you too. Maybe for good or maybe for ill, you are a revelation of your parents. You were born, and as the natural children of your parents, you look like your parents. You are uniquely qualified to reveal your parents because you were their offspring. And it's exactly the same with Jesus, the natural Son of God. He is uniquely qualified to reveal God the Father. And it's particularly that that we see going on in his ministry. That is why the four best evangelistic tracts are the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, because in them we see God the Father wonderfully revealed in Jesus. And that is why the public reading and preaching of the four Gospels has been so central in the life of the church over the last 2,000 years. There's Christ's life. It's there to reveal God the Father. Now, 
We arrive at Christ's death. And if the gospel is the centre of Christianity, then it's the death of Christ that is the centre of the gospel. Okay? This is an awesome subject. And as we come to it, just remember, we are now standing on holy ground. And as we unpack it, at the end of the day, it's something that we can only marvel at and fall to our knees in worship over. Now, how do we summarise fundamentally what Jesus achieved in his death? Well, you can summarise it in two words. Penal substitution. Penal substitution. Now, the wonderful thing about penal substitution, believe it or not, and this is absolutely fantastic, any bloke can understand penal substitution. Why? Because in soccer and in football you have penalties, and in soccer and in football you have substitutions. Okay? This is just fantastic. Now, let's stand back and think about penal. What is penal? It's the idea of a penalty. What is the penalty that we humans have incurred? And it's this. Every single one of us have offended the one true holy God. Now, we saw, didn't we, that sin is an attitude of rejection of God's rule. All of us, therefore, have pushed God away and we have rightly and justly aroused his anger. And this is where we've got to think carefully because how angry is God? We learn from the doctrine of creation that God is infinite. And our sin means that God is infinitely angry. In other words, we have incurred an infinite or an eternal fine before God. Mark 3.29 says that the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is an eternal sin. Now, that is why hell is going to be eternal. Because it will take an eternity to pay off that fine. I.e., we can't do it. It will go on forever. Now, the question is this. If this is the fine that we owe, an infinite fine, how possibly could human beings be delivered from it? This, there's the notion of penalty, it's here where the notion of substitution comes in. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he substituted himself in my place and in your place. When he died on the cross, what did he do with this infinite fine He paid the fine that we couldn't afford. See, that is why Jesus had to be human 
because he had to pay a human price. But that is why Jesus had to be divine, because he had to pay an infinite price. Now, look exactly at how 1 Peter puts it. He says this, You know that it is not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed. See, not finite things, not things of this creation were we redeemed. We weren't redeemed by those. Okay, They aren't enough to pay for the fine. How were we redeemed? Verse 19, we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without defect. Psalm 49 says, no one can redeem the life of a person because it's too costly. It doesn't matter how much gold you have, doesn't matter how wealthy you are, doesn't matter whether you're Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos, with zillions of dollars in them, you cannot even redeem one person from hell with that much money. It can only be the man who is God. And we get this amazing statement, just one of many, in Acts 20, 28, where it says this, Paul is talking to the elders of the Ephesian church and he says to them, be shepherds of the church of God, look at this, which he bought with his own blood, who is the he there? Is it Jesus? No, it's the church of God, which God bought with his own blood. That's what it would take to redeem us. God himself, the infinite, eternal one, who can take the infinite, eternal punishment. You see, Christ's death on the cross is not about physical pain. That's not fundamentally what it's about. It's not about the bodily pain of crucifixion. Just think about it. There were two other guys who were dying via crucifixion on either side of Jesus. In AD 70, the Romans got very angry at the Jews and they were crucifying at one stage 500 people a day. It's not the physical pain that the cross is all about. In Mark's Gospel, do you know how many words it takes to describe Jesus being crucified? In the Greek, it takes two words. In English, it's three. They crucified him. That's all. What does Mark's gospel actually emphasise? Not the physical crucifixion. The focus is on the fact that at midday, darkness came over the whole land. And darkness, of course, is the symbol from the Old Testament of God's judgment. And it came over the land for three hours. Can you imagine pitch black in the middle of the day? And in those three hours, God's infinite judgment that you and that I deserved fell on Christ. That's what the cross is about. Infinite agony of separation with God. One of the hardest things for a human being to deal with is usually a broken marriage, separation from each other. Often you find couples that if they live under the same roof they'll just about kill each other 
But even when they separate and divorce, the pain is immense. I look at my mother, she's been married uh, to Dad for over 50 years. Dad passed away about four years, five years ago now. Mum's still in grief at the loss. I said to her the other day, she's 90, she said, I don't think I'll ever get over this in this life. Because even the separation between finite humans is so painful and agonising. And on the cross, we get the separation of the eternal, infinite, perfect relationship between the Father and the Son. We can't start to imagine how painful that would be. Jesus has plummeted suffering in a way that we humans will never experience. Brothers and sisters, that is how much God loves you. You can tell how much someone loves you by how much they're willing to give up for you. You parents, would you give up one of your child, one of your children for people who don't like you? The father gave up his one and only son for we who were enemies of him. That's how much God loves us. And that's what it means for God to be a father to us. Because fathers love their children more than anything else. And they only do good to them. You see, the cross is the ultimate display of God's love. There is no better news in the world for a human being than this. And the deepest need that you and I have is to know this fatherly love of God. And here it is on the cross. Don't look to circumstances around you to see if God loves you. Don't see that in the suffering of this life that somehow God doesn't love you. Don't look to whether you're single or married, whether whether you're employed in a good job or whether you've failed the exam. The daily situation of our lives shifts and changes. The great proof that God loves us is the cross. And that is the anchor that will secure you through life's ups and particularly through life's downs. And it's that love that has caused all kinds of Christians over the years to do amazing things for their God, taking the gospel to the four ends of the earth through all kinds of suffering and circumstances. There's the humiliation of Christ. And now we come to Christ's exaltation. Now, we could really call his uh, exaltation Christ's coronation because it's in his exaltation that Jesus is officially crowned king of the universe. Let me put it this way. It's this part of Christ's work whereby he receives a job promotion to the top. Okay? It's in this that he becomes the ruler of the world. Now, the thing is, the coronation takes three steps. The first step in Christ's coronation is, of course, his resurrection. Now, we cannot preach the gospel without the resurrection. 
Paul's words are these. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David, this is my gospel. Why is the resurrection so crucial? What is it that's so important about the resurrection in the gospel? Well, it's just this, that Jesus' resurrection to new life, it is the beginning of the new creation. As Paul says, Christ is the beginning and the firstborn from amongst, literally, the dead ones. You see, because of the fall, this creation is under a curse. Romans 8 talks about our creation as groaning because it's under a bondage to decay. It's kind of like this entire world is suffering from a really bad case of dengue. The entire world. It's almost like a terminal cancer. And the problem is, is that we, from within, cannot produce a cure. Because we are a part of the infection itself. And the only cure was for the creator to come from the outside of creation. And the cure was injected into the creation. Christ entered the creation. Because he could only recreate it from within. And he could only do this through taking the punishment for our sin and then conquering death in his resurrection to start something new. Christ the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. Now, we hear a lot about climate change, don't we? Uh, It's always on the news. Wherever you go, you seem to hear about it. And so this is forcing humans now to try to create new forms of power. Uh, What have been called renewables. Uh, People are now looking for a source of power that supposedly won't destroy the planet. Uh, How are we going to do this? Where are we going to get this power from? Perhaps wind power. We're using that a lot in Australia. That's not doing too well, but they're trying it. Some have been trying solar power. Others have been talking about nuclear power. In the resurrection, Jesus produced the cleanest and the mightiest power of all. Resurrection power. And it's this power that will transform the entire cosmos. You see, if Christ's death is a demonstration of God's love, Christ's resurrection is the supreme demonstration of God's power. But it was not enough for Christ to be raised from the dead and then just walk around on planet Earth. And so we come to the second stage of Christ's exaltation, and that is his ascension. See, think about it. Christ in his death and in his resurrection has won all these wonderful blessings for us. But he can't share these blessings while he stays on earth. Jesus can only share his blessings from the control room of the universe. And that is where God dwells in heaven. So if Jesus, who is going to share all these wonderful blessings from his death and from his resurrections, he needed to enter heaven itself. 
Now, look at how Hebrews puts it. Christ didn't enter a sanctuary made with human hands, i.e. the temple in Jerusalem, that was only a copy of the true one. Christ entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Think of a pilot. Now, a pilot has the gifts and the training, doesn't he, to be able to fly a plane. But a pilot can't fly a plane from the airport lounge. No, no, no. To fly a plane, the pilot has got to actually get onto the plane and then enter the cockpit. And it's only from the cockpit that the pilot can use their gifts and their training of flying and get the plane off the ground. It matters where the pilot is. And so is Jesus. so with Jesus, it matters where he is. If he is going to share his gifts of forgiveness and of new creation power, he can't do it from earth. He must enter the cockpit of heaven itself because it's only from there before God the Father in the world's control room that he can distribute all these wonderful gifts and blessings to us. And so this brings us to the third stage of Jesus' exaltation, or the third stage of his coronation, and that's what we call Jesus' sitting, or sometimes they call it session, because this is the point where Jesus actually, as a king, sits on the throne. See, Jesus isn't officially king until he finally sits on the throne. And now, on the throne, he is officially the ruler of the world. Look at how Paul puts this. When God raised Christ from the dead and then seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms far above all other rule and authority and power and dominion, every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet. That's just a biblical way of saying Jesus now rules absolutely everything. And he appointed him to be head over everything for the church. You see, when Christ finally sits on the throne in heaven, it means that he now rules all. And the question is this, why does he rule all things? Look at those last three words. He does it for the church. Christ's rule on the throne guarantees your full and final salvation. Did you know that day by day and minute by minute and second by second, Christ on the throne is imparting to us resurrection power? Day in and day out, he does this so that we persevere and so that the devil will not overcome us. Christ from heaven on the throne will build the church and the gates of Hades will not overcome. You see, it's only when Christ is crowned and sits on the throne that Jesus truly began to rule the universe. But you might be thinking to yourself, hang on, wasn't Jesus ruling the universe before his death and resurrection? No, 
not as a human. The big change that's happened in the work of Christ is that a human king now rules the universe. You see what an essential part of the gospel message is? The gospel declares that there is now a new human ruler of the entire cosmos. Who is he? He is King Jesus. That's why we call him Jesus Christ, because Christ means king. And that's why the exaltation of Christ is so important to the gospel, because the gospel is not just that Jesus is our rescuer, it's also that Jesus is our ruler. It's not that he's just a saviour, it's that he now is Lord. And that is why the right response to the gospel is twofold. It's not only to have faith in a saviour, but to repent and come under the rule of the Lord. You can't have Christ as a rescuer, but not a ruler. But just remember, this ruler, this human ruler, is very different to every other human ruler. Because Christ's humiliation shows that he's a servant and Christ's exaltation shows that he is a king. He is the servant king. Shows us that leadership is all about being a servant. And so there is the work of Christ. In his humiliation, the bungee jumped down, and then in his exaltation, the return back to heaven, but as a human ruler. And so this raises a massive question. If Christ now rules from heaven, what is the mechanism that he uses to apply all these wonderful blessings that he's won to us? How does it actually happen? He's got all these blessings. He's seated on the throne in heaven. But how does it come to be that those blessings can actually be imparted to me, both on me and in me? Put another way, redemption has been accomplished. But how now is redemption applied? And it's a kind of a weird answer. It gets applied because we become married to Christ. What do you mean to become married to Christ? Let's just stand back and have a bit of a think about what marriage is in the Bible. Marriage in the Bible is two people who become one flesh. Uh, Both the Hebrew and the Greek literally says the two shall be glued together and become one flesh. And so if marriage is all about two people coming together, being united, glued together, and they become one flesh, what that means, therefore, what a part of marriage is, is that everything that each party owns in the marriage is then shared with each other. A good friend of mine who was once a colleague was telling me all about his marriage one day. We were sitting back and just shooting the breeze over, of course, a coffee, 
He said, you know, Marty, uh, when I was a young man in my early 20s, I thought to myself, one day I'm going to meet the woman of my dreams. And I thought to myself, what I've got to do is I've got to start saving some money now. I've got to build up a little nest egg so that when I get married, we'll have some money to begin with. And so in his early 20s, he started to save all this money and save all this money and save all this money. And then he met the woman of his dreams. And they got married. And in marriage, of course, you share everything, don't you? He had this wonderful nest egg that he'd spent years building up. And of course, as soon as they get married, that nest egg is not only owned by him, it then becomes owned by his wife. Did his wife have a nest egg of savings? No. (laughs) It's worse. She had debt. (laughs) And he told me that her debt was the identical amount of his nest egg. And so they started marriage with absolutely nothing. Because in marriage, you share everything. Now, when the Bible talks about how the church marries Christ, that is exactly what it's getting at. We become one flesh with Christ, and therefore we share everything. What Christ owns becomes ours, and what we own becomes his. What is it that we own? Well, we own an infinite debt because of our infinite guilt. And that's okay because when we marry Jesus, he can deal with it because he's died on the cross for our sin. But what does Jesus own? Well, Jesus owns perfect righteousness that he lived out as a human being. A perfect cleanness, or what the Bible calls holiness, because of the perfect life that he lives. A wonderful redemption price that he paid for us. That he is a son of God. And a whole lot of other things that go with it, and you know what? They all become owned by me. And you, Christ, shares that with us. You see, look at what scripture says here. It is because of God the Father that you are in Christ Jesus. Now, that's a classic way of talking about how believers are married to Christ. That's kind of like the slang that the New Testament uses. Whenever you see in Christ, that means usually married to Christ. It's because of God that you've been married to Christ. What does this mean? Well, he's become for us wisdom from God. That is, what has he become? He's become our righteousness, our holiness, holiness means cleanness, our redemption, our redemption price. You see, there's Christ. He is all righteousness, holiness and redemption. And there's us. We have been united to him and we get to own his perfect Righteousness, holiness, and redemption. All these wonderful blessings and benefits. In fact, let's just briefly have a look at some of the most important blessings that the New Testament says that we receive when we're married to Christ. The first one is justification. This is a term from the law court. 
Justification in the Bible is what happens when a judge says to someone innocent or not guilty. They are justified. If someone's guilty, they are condemned. But if they're found to be innocent, they are justified. And because Christ's perfect righteousness becomes ours, then we can be declared by God the Father to be justified, to be innocent of our guilt. The second great blessing is sanctification. What is sanctification? Well, we move from the world of the law court and we now move to the world of the Old Testament sacrificial system. And in the Old Testament sacrificial system, to sanctify something was literally to set it apart for special use. My mum had, still has, some wine glasses that have been in the family for generations and generations and generations. They're heirlooms. They're worth a lot of money. And she showed these to me when I was a child once. One of the things I didn't use these wine glasses for was just to drink water or milk each day when I was a young kid. Because mum had these special wine glasses and only pulled them out on special occasions to be used. Not even just birthdays, they had to be really special occasions like engagements and that kind of thing. You could say that these wine glasses were sanctified. That is, they were set apart only to be used for very special occasions. And that's what to be sanctified means for us. We have been set apart for a very special purpose. And that purpose is to live clean lives for Jesus. Not only have we been justified and sanctified, but we've been redeemed. You see, we move from the law court to the Old Testament sacrificial system, and now we move to the slave market. Because slaves would be caught in the ancient world and then they would be freed if you paid a price. And the Bible says that what Jesus did on the cross was to pay that price to free slaves, a redemption price. Where were we slaves? We were slaves to our sin. And Christ paid the redemption price to free us from our slavery to sin. The next benefit, of course, we move from the slave market and now we go the, to the family law court. Because if you know anything about people falling out, particularly when it comes to marriage falling out and divorces, you'll know that divorced husbands and wives or ex-husbands and wives can be very angry with each other. They're almost enemies with each other. And that's just a small picture of like our state with God before we became a Christian. The Bible describes us as enemies. We were enemies of God and God was enemies of us. And we couldn't stand each other. And in Christ's death that has completely changed and where we were once enemies, there's now been reconciliation. It's like a divorced couple who put it behind them and get back together again. We move from the family law court now to the maternity law. Because this is the great truth, regeneration, 
where Christ's resurrection power enters into our heart and we are born again. We are regenerated. There is a new creation that starts in us. We become sons and daughters of God. And a real change occurs in our heart. A whole new orientation is given to us so that we now actually want to follow Christ. We don't do it perfectly, but the fact that we want to do it, the fact that we're going now in the right direction, even though it's very wobbly, is a sign that we've been regenerated. And lastly, we move to the world of adoption. Because this is probably the supreme benefit that we enjoy in the Gospel. Because we were once orphans. And God the Father has opened up the relationship between He and His natural Son, Christ. And He's brought us into that family relationship and He's done so forever. Why is this a supreme blessing? Because it doesn't show us just what we've been saved from. It shows us what we are saved into. And it shows us that the first person of the Trinity now has moved from being our judge to being our Father. And the great definition of the Father in the Bible is that fathers generate offspring and the sign they are a father is that they are only good and loving and kind and benevolent and merciful to their children. And the maker of the universe, the first person of the Trinity, the eternal creator God who is so holy that we can't stand in his presence is now our father who cares for us and is only good to us and only loves us at every point from here on and into eternity. And now we have this amazing privilege of being able to cry out to the creator of the world, Abba, Father. Magnificent stuff. Okay, well let's draw it to a close. The last thing I just want to say is that we now can come and talk about the Holy Spirit. Because here's the question. How do we talk about the Holy Spirit and keep Jesus central? Answer? The Spirit is the bond that unites us to Christ. That is, the Holy Spirit applies all the wonderful blessings of Jesus to us. Christ has accomplished salvation The Holy Spirit brings it to us. You see, the Trinity are a team. They all together work to bring about our salvation. They're not on different teams playing against each other. They are on one team and they have different roles or positions in that team. The Father plans our salvation. The Son accomplishes our salvation. And the Holy Spirit applies Christ's salvation to us. In other words, the Holy Spirit always fits in with what the Son has done and what the Father has planned and never apart from that. Okay. Okay. Let me open it up for questions, comments, words of testimony.
prophecies. Prophecy? Question. Thank you for the clarification. simple answer. The Bible tells us what's in the Bible. Okay? If there was a greater authority that told us what was it, sorry, if there was another authority that told us what is in the Bible, it would be a greater authority than the Bible. We know the Bible is God's word. We can't have a, we can't go to some authority that tells us what's in the Bible. We have to go to the Bible itself. So the question is how does the Bible tell us which books are in the Bible? And again, that's a, actually a really simple answer. It's this Christ came and brought the ultimate revelation. Who did he entrust that revelation to? The apostles. Okay? The Bible says that the apostles were led into all truth when it came to delivering the revelation that Jesus brought. And so that's why the books that we include in the Bible, in the New Testament, okay, um, are, are apostolic. That is, they're written by an apostle or a co worker of the apostles because they were included in that as well. And the reason why we pull the Old Testament in is because the apostles and the co-workers of the apostles say that the Old Testament is inspired. Okay, So it's a really, really simple answer. When you look at the history of the church, that's ex- exactly what happens, is that no church council or anything like that starts saying there's a Bible. Basically, the church discovers that there's a Bible, and the Bible, as, it's, as the books themselves start to impose themselves on the church. And so well before, you know, councils had said these are the kind of books we need in the Bible, there was already a Bible. Now, it took a bit of time for all the books to kind of filter around the churches, etc., etc., etc. But that's, that's in a nutshell how Scripture came about. Ming. Oh, sorry. I'll just go to Ming first and then come down to why. Yes, okay, so I talked about how uh, uh, I would love to talk about that but realise I've got limited time. In fact, if, you know what you do if you keep clicking? Faith, okay. <laughs> repentance, love, but I decided not to go there. I put it in there, but I thought, look, I'll, I'll cut back. And that was because I did talk about faith. Remember I said that the right response to the gospel of Jesus is Saviour and his Lord is faith, i.e. trust in him as Saviour, because faith basically just means trust, and repentance means turn and live under him. So the gospel has a twofold demand on it, faith and repentance, or trust and turn. The next big Yes, um, the shepherds of the Church of God, which is born in the world, you say that he must be God. Is this one of the five percent where he is not referring to God? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Like John 1 1 is. Yeah. <coughs> Andrew, yeah. This is a very fine. This is such a fine voice. 
only in the Old Testament, believe it or not, because in the Old Testament, um, it depicts Israel as marrying God at Mount Sinai, okay, but then Israel rebel, and in essence, they commit adultery, don't they, by going after other gods, and so in books like Jeremiah, it talks about how God divorced himself from Israel because she had committed adultery. But that doesn't happen with Christ and his church uh, because Christ is ruling from heaven and will make sure that there is no divorce ever. Uh, This is a marriage that lasts for eternity and that's why faithfulness in marriage is so important because it reflects the faithfulness that Christ has to his people. And really what we're trying to do very much in our earthly marriages which are not the true marriage, the true marriage is between Christ and the church, what we want to do in our earthly marriages is be a visual aid of that true marriage between Christ and the church. that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 15 is because sin has been paid for in Christ's death. In other words, there cannot be a resurrection and there cannot be a new creation in any way. There can be no new creation power until the debt has been paid. The only way to pay that debt is not in a resurrection, it's in Christ's death. Okay, So just think of it in terms of a debt having to be paid first then we can enjoy the new creation. That's the order that goes in. Now, there couldn't have been a resurrection without a death. Okay? It's, not just, it's not just merely dying and it's not just a body ceasing to work. Okay? That, um, that is a part of what Christ achieved in his death. It's fundamentally about Jesus paying the price for uh, our rebellion because death in the Bible uh, is... Being, fundamentally, it's not about physical death, it's, it's about being out of a relationship with God. And so uh, physical death is really only a sign, an illustration of what it means to be fundamentally out of a relationship with God. We'll talk more about that tomorrow when we look at death in the intermediate state, etc. Is, is that answering your question? Right. I will have to pay the debt that will get me out of trouble. 
it will still cost even though I know it's, it's going to be successful, isn't it? Like, uh, yes, God is going to raise Jesus from the dead, but it's going to cost, it's got to cost him first. He knows that that's going to happen. But then God actually, the Godhead actually has to go through the sacrifice of Christ and experience that temporary uh, separation between the Father and the Son, which we, you know, it's just so horrendous. Uh, that has to happen first. Uh, just because you know something is going to happen, it doesn't take away the pain when it does. Um, I knew my father was going to die. You know, didn't take the pain away when when it actually happened. Uh, and so it is with God. He knew that Christ would have to go through the death and then the resurrection. That still doesn't just because Christ rose from the death doesn't take away at all from the sacrifice. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. It's yeah. good to hear you've got non-Christian friends and you're talking to them. Uh, you asked me a tough question, which I can't answer. Well, uh, you said, uh, what kind of God would I want to believe in if he as a father of the sent son uh, died for? Yeah. What kind of a God would I want to believe in who sends their son to die for us? Uh, meaning that that's a terrible... Terrible father who treats his son that way. Yeah, okay. Um, the thing you've got to understand about Christ's death and Christ going to the cross is that he's not a child. He had a say in it. Okay? So this cannot be something like child abuse where a father just mistreats a son. Okay? Now, uh, um, liberal theologians from where I come from in Perth used to accuse me of believing that all the time because I believed in penal substitution. Uh, but I kept pointing out to them that Jesus is not a child. Jesus is a grown man. In fact, Jesus is the Son of God. And Jesus says in John 10, I have no one uh, will force me to die. I have the authority to lay down my life and to take it up again. And I choose to do that myself. And so there's obviously before the foundation of the world an agreement between the Father and the Son to do that. Think of an, you know, an adult father and an adult son who agree that that son will uh, sacrifice in some kind of a way to resolve a problem. Uh, that, that, I think, is an incredible picture of the kind of God we're to believe in because he is a self-sacrificial God. Because the, the father suffers in the cross and the son. The father suffers indirectly. The son suffers directly. And they do that for us. Uh, that is an incredibly loving God. Again, you can tell how much you love, how much love someone has for someone by how much they're willing to give up for them. Sorry, um, I want to ask this is a question that, um, that I really struggle with. Um, it says that uh, you know in Ephesians one, right, that he has predestined us for adoption, right, uh, to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Then we talk about salvation, right? Obviously. He wants everyone to be saved. Mm. Then there are parts of the Bible where he says, right, he caused certain people, right, to, um, uh, to be, you know, uh, instrument where people glorify. So let's say, for example, like Pharaoh, yep. right, he caused it to harden yep. his Now I know that evil doesn't come from God, but I don't understand how, like, he as, as he is a great one, that he can do whatever he chooses, mm. but yet he chooses some. Right, so he predestined some mm -hmm. not to be saved, not to be married to 
Yeah, that's right. Okay. Um, let me reframe what it actually says, I think, in the Bible. So, for example, in Ephesians 1, it says that he's predestined us for adoption. So, in God's mind, when he predestined people, who did he predestine them? When, when he was thinking of people at that time, in what state was he thinking of them in when he predestined them? It was in their fallen state. Okay, so God predestines sinners who don't deserve it. That's why predestination is an act of love. Now, when it comes to those who aren't predestined, um, so there's several questions there. Let, let me just go through them one by one. Uh, when it comes to those who aren't predestined, God doesn't predest predestine them to wickedness. Okay, the Bible never says that. Um, uh, what the Bible says is God leaves them in their wickedness, okay, because he's, he's dealing with humanity who are fallen. So he's leaving those who aren't chosen, he's leaving them to their wickedness, and if there is a predestination, it's a predestining them to get what they deserve. There is not, you can, you can never ever say that God predestines people to wickedness or he predestines that they are going to sin. Okay, God will not do that, that's, that's not him. But he will predestine people to a just outcome. He will leave sinners where they are. Now, when it comes to Pharaoh and God hardening Pharaoh's heart, what we're going to do is stand back and look at the language of the Bible and how this works. Okay? Um, God can't be tempted by sin. James 1.13 tells us that. God... Uh, can't cause people to do evil directly because that would make him evil. So, let's just park Pharaoh and come and think about Job. You know the story of Job where Job starts with the devil coming to the Father, God, and saying, have you seen my servant Job? Uh, sorry, God says, have you seen my servant Job? And the devil says, oh, he only serves you out of because of what he can get out of you. And then the devil actually initiates but if he suffers, I can make him fall. Now, uh, God allows that to happen. He lets the devil do that. So, when we read the story of what happens, Job goes through all this suffering, and then what does the text say? Job, uh, after all, after he suffers, he says, the Lord gave and the Lord took away. Now, how did the Lord take away? God didn't take away by initiating evil in any way. God took away by allowing the devil in his initiative to do evil and harm to Job. Okay? Now, the Bible can sometimes say that's the Lord taking away because the Lord could have stopped it. But the Lord didn't initiate it, okay? and the Lord allowed that to happen. So when it, the language then of God hardening Pharaoh's heart basically means that God doesn't do anything to Pharaoh, if I can put it that way, directly. He leaves Pharaoh to his sinful desires, you see. And in that way, that's a you know, way of using language, you can say that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. He could have stopped it, but he didn't. He left Pharaoh to be who Pharaoh himself wanted to be and to do whom Pharaoh himself wanted to do at that time. Okay? Now, no reputable theologian ever uh, has ever said that God causes people to do evil. Okay? Because that would make God evil. You cannot put it that way. Just one last thing. Therefore, those who aren't chosen, it's not unjust of God. Okay? 
because God leaves them to his justice. Okay? If God were to be just, completely just, we'd all go to hell. So we've moved out of the category of fairness and justice. You can't accuse God of injustice when people go to hell. They get what they deserve. We've moved out of the category of justice and fairness, and we're now moving to mercy and grace. And the incredible thing is that God has mercy on anyone. Yeah, so there'll be more time for Q&A after tomorrow's talk. Okay, so you can uh, save your questions for that. Okay, so uh, now take a quick break and then come back for discussion. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.